some of the dangers, for, particularly dangers that they're going to face when they enter the land. And he's trying to warn them against some of these things. So, chapter 6, verses 1 to 9. Now, this statutes and the judgments that the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you and that you will, that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. These words, which I am commanding you today, shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently. To your sons, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Okay, look at what I would suggest is kind of the outline of these dangers. There's the danger for getting God. The danger of the influence of the nations, the danger of self-confidence, the danger of pride. And uh, in each of those last three, he has a statement, do not say in your heart, which seems to uh, be somewhat parallel. So we're going to look at those. I'll leave that on there if I can keep it on there for a little bit. And there's nothing great about that. It's just kind of organizing the ideas in those passages. But, But I think these are very applicable for us. Because we face very similar dangers. So I think us seeing this will be good for us. So he starts out by, you know, again saying that these laws are going to help them when they come into the land. It will bring God's blessing. And they're being able to continue in this land that uh, oozes with milk and honey. Quite a contrast with the barrenness of the wilderness. And he says, God's one God, and you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. God was to be the sole object of Israel's faith and obedience and affection. You know, if God's the only God, think about how that's different from pagan notions. You know, a pagan worshiper never could be sure you know, if, if his loyalty to one God would protect him from the uh, wrath of some other God. You know, which God is going to win out this time? The fact that God is the only God means we should love him with everything we've got. We can be exclusively loyal to him. There's nobody else to turn to and there's no one else to threaten us. He is the only God. He's not even saying here, that we should believe in one God. We should. But he's saying which God it is. It's not just that any one God is good enough, but it is the Lord Himself that is God. And so we obey Him based upon our love. You know, you see people whose obedience doesn't have a very good attitude behind it. You know, it's very like, 
just um, almost grudging. You see some people, okay, do I have to do this? You know, is it, is, can you show me in the Bible that I've got to do it? If I've got to do it, I'll do it. I'll grit my teeth and I'll bear it. You know, kind of an idea. You see some of those kinds of, of obedience. And, and that gives obedience a bad name. You see some people who try to obey to make a name for themselves, to make themselves look good, to impress people, and that's bad. You see people who are almost seem like they're walking a minefield. They're almost afraid to do anything, afraid it's going to offend God. You know, they can't, they can't live, they have no peace, they have no hope. So sometimes you see attitudes that are bad in obedience, and you kind of throw out the baby with the bathwater. Well, I don't want to be obedient. Because, boy, those people who obey God, look at how neurotic they become. Well, God does not want some grudging obedience, some prideful obedience, some uh, kind of obedience that's just living in terror of, of making a wrong step. He wants loving obedience. You know, he wants us to obey him because we, we really love him and care about him. And, and, and we love him so much that we want to please him. You know, I, I was thinking about this a while back. Maybe this would be one illustration. That's not the primary thing I'm saying. It's just an illustration. But uh, sometimes I hear discussions about some controversial question. You know, some debated point. And somebody says, well, do you think that's a salvation issue? Well, they usually ask that question to prejudice the discussion, I think. Because if you say, yes, I think it's a salvation issue, then you're making what you believe about that controversial question a matter of whether you'll be saved or not. That's, that's really bad. Or you say, no, I don't think it is. Well, if it's not a salvation issue, then we don't have to talk about it. Because it doesn't matter. You know, so just drop it. Well, I wish you'd think about that what if we took something, you know, practice X, and we knew God wouldn't condemn us for it, for, for not doing it. But we, we knew that's what God really wanted us to do. But he won't send us to hell if we don't. It's just, it's just that he wants us to. Well, how would you deal with that? If you knew, it wouldn't send you to hell. But, but God wants you to. Then would you do it, or would you say, oh, well, hell... If it's not going to be a salvation issue, then I don't worry about it. You, you, I think that illustrates the idea that so often, you know, we don't really love God. We may just be trying to do some things to, to earn some salvation points or something like that. If, I, if we knew it's okay as far as our salvation is concerned, but God would really like for us to do Do you do that with your parents if you love your parents? You know, most of you are old enough if you have good parents, you love them. You should love them anyway, but you really you really respect them and, and all that if they're good. And think about that kind of relationship with parents. And and maybe you're old enough that mom and dad are not gonna punish you. You know, they're not gonna take away your allowance, you're too old to get an allowance, you know, they're not gonna send you to your room and give you time out, but you're not gonna paddle you. You know, but you know that it would really mean a lot to them. It would really encourage them if you do this or that. So you say, well, you know, they're not going to cut me out of their will. So I'm not going to bother them. But you love them. You want to please them. So the point I'm trying to make is that a loving heart is an obedient heart. 
in fact, more obedient. Because you think about the person, the, the little kid maybe, who only serves his parents because he doesn't want to get punished. Well, what if he thinks he could get by with it? You know, I, they'll never know. They won't see it. They'll do it. You know, whereas the one who loves his parents wouldn't do it just because he respects them and loves them and cares about them so much. Willing, loving obedience is more obedient. We need to have that heart that completely wants to please God, that wants to live for God. That, that concept, I think, is really important for us. To, to love Him that much. And if you love Him like that, then look at what He says in 6 to 9. These words shall be on your heart. You know, the idea is that, that the commands of God, the words of God, are just such a, a big part of our life. We just make them into to our very being. You know, we're, we're just always thinking about them, meditating on them, and then we talk about them all the time. We pass them on to our children. And we don't pass them on to our children as just a legal code. You know, okay, here's the check marks. We talk about them all the time. We love God. We, we, we diligently explain and teach and, and, and really invest in our children knowing the Lord, knowing the heart of God, knowing the things God has done, knowing the will of God. We seize every opportunity for instruction. From breakfast to bedtime, we're always talking about the word of the Lord. Now, think again. One of the things that really worries me is that I don't think we have this much love and zeal for God's word. We just want it. We, we read it all the time. We think about it all the time. We talk about it all the time. We meditate on it. We study it. We teach it. I think we so often get to where we're good people and, and we, we like to talk about good ideas and good philosophies and, and but, but we're not really that concerned about the word itself. You know, we, we talk about good values and, and good family values, good good uh, you know uh, patriotic values and good work ethic and, and we talk about a lot of good things. But we don't really read and study the Bible all that much. We're not that passionate about the Word itself. To really know it and live it. That's going to bite us. We need to know this and love it and live it. It's the Word that God gave us. There is no, there's no way to overrate that. People just laugh. <laughs> you love this book. It's just words on a page. It's not what you think. If you get a letter from a girlfriend who lives a long ways away and you rarely hear from, you know, of course, today it's a 24-7 text. But, but you're back in my generation. You know, think about that. I mean, you get words even now with a 24-7 text. I bet you value the words you're getting. You know, because not not because they're words, but because they're words from your girlfriend. Yes. Um, I was going to say, not like falling in love with the world, with the word of God, but falling in love with God and His stuff, and that's going to make you fall in love with His word. Exactly, because they are His words. When you love God and what He says, you really want and you want to listen to, and you're eager for that. 
You want to please Him. So this is the connection He makes here. You love God with everything you got, and then naturally everything God says you're going to be passionate about. Thoughts and comments here through the first time. Kind of just expanding on this with what we're saying. I mean, to compare this to what some of the other gods in that area, some of the uh, idolatrous gods, you know, who, like we said earlier, they didn't have any instruction, they didn't have any word from them. You look at the Greek gods and mythology, it was almost like the gods were after them, they were happening to them. They were, there wasn't really a relationship. And we're able to have, we have, as we've been saying, his word right in front of us. An amazing blessing. Yeah, amen. Yes. Um, verse 3 uh, says, listening to and being careful to do the word <coughs> means that it'll be well when you do it and they multiply greatly. I think in terms of today, how we multiply is that we live how we evangelize. So. Good point. Mm-hmm. Other thoughts? Okay. Uh, 10 to 19. Then it shall come about when Yahweh your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you shall eat and be satisfied. Then watch yourself, lest you forget Yahweh who brought you from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall fear only Yahweh, your God, and you shall worship Him and swear by His name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. For Yahweh, your God, in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of Yahweh, your God, will be kindled against you, and He will wipe you off the face of the earth. You shall not put Yahweh your God to the test, as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of Yahweh your God, and his testimonies, and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of Yahweh, that it may be well with you, and that you may go, go in and possess the good land which Yahweh swore to give your father, by driving out all your enemies from before you. As Yahweh is spoken. Okay, so, you know, what he warns about here? Forgetting God. Because of what? What might lead them to forget God? All the blessings God is given, giving them. When they come into the land and they have all these wonderful cities they never built, and the houses that they never built, and, and all the vineyards and trees and and everything's great, and they're satisfied. Watch yourself that you don't forget God. Isn't it an amazing thing that when God blesses us more, our tendency is to forget Him more? You would think it would be the other way around. You would think the more God does for us, the more we love Him, and remember Him, and serve Him, and be grateful to Him. But it seems like our prosperity and blessings from God lead us to forget Him, lead us to forget the source. Uh, David committed worse acts of infidelity when he was prosperous than when he was struggling, you know, on the run. 
and so forth. So, you know, it's something to think about for us. Do we recognize that all of our abundant blessings come from the Lord and give Him the credit for them? Or do we tend to to become self-satisfied? He he emphasizes again the need to not follow other gods. You might think about one of the reasons that they would be especially tempted to worship other gods when they came into the land was so that the gods of that land would bless them. You know, they had kind of the idea of the territorial deities. So if you want to get good prosperity out of this land, who's the god that has jurisdiction here? And uh, make sure you do what he wants you to do. And so they want to know from the Canaanites, you know, what will give you prosperity? Well, it's Baal in Canaan. You know, so you worship Baal, and, and that way you get, you know, prosperity from him. The Lord does not tolerate rivals. That's what already said. He said not to test God. Not to uh, question God's ability to keep his promises, but to simply submit to what he says and do it. And so those are some of the things that he's worried about. That they will, they will forget God and not respect him like they should when he blesses them with all these good things in the land. Thoughts and comments? Yes. So Moses disappears for 40 days on the top of the mountain that they're petrified of. In that same time frame, they create this image. I know. And then you get you get to Amos, and when Amos is talking, I know it's more to the northern tribe, but he says, did you not carry with you your gods in, in the wilderness too? That You think about that, it goes back to that fear piece that you hit on so heavily that, that they, just, they didn't have it. And, and that should speak to us. Amen. Yes, a lot of times in the society that we live in, we equate things that maybe make our life easier or make life more enjoyable as being blessings all the time. But oftentimes as we look back on our past experiences, things that we thought were maybe blessings to begin with were maybe became temptations to us. And a lot of times things that actually made our life harder as God sent tests our way are actually blessings that he, he blesses our life with as we see a Christian is blessed through suffering and trial. That's true, yeah. Sometimes the hardest things are not the worst things. They may be the better ones, Alex. And uh, the thorny soil uh, is an example of, of this, that when all those cares came up, they choked out the Word. So you have to remember to keep the Word first. Amen. Other thoughts? Yes. So. The theme of the pride coming before the fall and the idea of the dangers of and materialism um, Jesus had more warnings about that, and even in um, Timothy, when Paul was talking to him, he said, "Charge them who are rich in this world that they not be high-minded or trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy." It's really a bad and difficult thing in our America because we're so richly blessed. Even those who are middle-income, modest people are very, very blessed. And it's easy to get very comfortable in your home and all the things you have and not trust in God and go through the motions. So it's an important warning for us since we've been so greatly blessed. It will be a temptation for us to be self-satisfied and forget the Lord to get caught up in the blessings themselves and forget the blessing. That is a danger. Yes? It's crazy intimidating how on top of things you have to be. Because, like, you have to have that balance. Like, we're it's so awful in the way that we turn blessings from God into things that hinder us from getting close to Him. 
it's a great like it's a great thing to have work ethic. It's a great like we shouldn't be lazy. But we turn something good like work ethic to be responsible, to get money and be responsible, um, into you're so busy, you don't have time, you don't make the time to take care of your responsibilities to God. Yeah, it's just it's, it's crazy how on our game we have to be so that we don't take a blessing and, and turn it into yeah. something bad. Amen. Yeah, uh so. Uh, that's why I, I, I love Proverbs 30, verse 8 and 9. It's a difficult prayer to pray. Give me neither poverty nor riches. How many people in this country say, God, do not give me riches so that I would forget you, uh, who you are? Great point. What? Yeah, I was just thinking in verse 16, it says you should not tempt the Lord your God. And, you know, I was thinking about Jesus' statement when Satan was tempted in the wilderness. and. You know, Satan was obviously quoting a passage out of context, trying to get Jesus to, you know, <coughs> submit to him. And he says, "You should not tempt the Lord your God." But I was, I was, I guess, could you comment on how we can reconcile that with people who seem to have tested God, like I don't know, Gideon, and it's like you know, he, he didn't really believe what God was saying, and there are others who have questioned God and I guess tested God, His promises. Sometimes it may depend on the attitude. You know, a Gideon was wanting reassurance to be able to do what God says. Sometimes we may test more in a skeptical spirit because we don't want to do what he says. God is very patient, uh, but sometimes <laughs> our testing is just a reflection of our self-will and stubbornness. That may be part of it. Like the Pharisees, for example. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, when they ask for more signs, it's like, well... <laughs> You know, I mean, that doesn't make sense. I mean, God, Jesus gave them so many signs, such enormous signs. They were asking for more signs, not because they wanted to reassure themselves and really believe, but because they were looking for some kind of a justification for not believing. Yes? I can kind of embellish on that point. Uh, if you look at Abraham's God is certainly patient and works with people who are seeking Him. And, you know, but we ought to have a spirit of submission to God, trust, and dependence on Him. It's helpful to consider the example he cites there, too, at Massa, however you pronounce that. Obviously, they were doing that with grumbling, questioning God. Yeah. I mean, it's testing Him as you did it. Good point, yes. Where they were... They never thought God could come through in the in the you know crisis. Although He'd done it over and over again, every new crisis they threw up their hands in despair. Uh, you know, do we do that? Are we willing to trust Him, or do we always question? I just don't think He can do it this time. You know, He's always asked before, but I think this will be too much for Him. You know, that's that complaining that spirit is not good. Now, good, good thoughts, good things to think about. How about 20 to uh, 20, 25? 
When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us up from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good ways, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Okay. So, you know, he, he says your son asked about these laws. What do these laws mean that God commanded you? Teaching opportunities will arise when we do what God says. You know, when we're obedient, then our children want to know, well, why are you doing it this way? You know, what does this mean? And uh, what, what are they told? Well, they're told the story about what God did in bringing them out of Egypt, doing the signs and wonders, bringing them into the land. Often when our children ask questions, when we're trying to teach them, we need to teach them the stories of what God has done. Children love stories. They learn from stories. We learn from stories. So tell them the story of what God did. And I, I think that's a, that's a tremendous model for us in that. You don't tell them about God abstractly as much as you tell them about God in terms of His activity. And His deliverance is the heart of what He's done. So I think that, that's very helpful. And then He says in 24, tell them that the Lord has commanded us to preserve all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, for our survival. The reason for keeping the law, the reason for God giving the law, it was what was good for us, what was best for us. So we need to trust Him in that. And uh, then, what will we get out of that? It will be our righteousness. You know, it, we, will, we will be right in the sight of God by living the way He teaches us to live. Comments and thoughts here on the end of chapter 6. That's fine. And then the last verse is 25. It says, if we are careful to do all these commandments. Careful, we've already read this word how many times? Yeah. Five times. And it seems like it's a, a theme in this book that we should be careful to do all the commandments of the Lord, to read them carefully and do them carefully. What would be the opposite of careful? Careless. Careless, no, wouldn't it be? And you think about that. How often are we careless when it comes to God's commands, God's word, careless in knowing it, careless in applying it? We need to be careful. Jill? I know um, not everybody here has you know, Christian families, and I know I'm one person in particular who um, I do hope someday that my parents do respond to that, uh, you know, they uh, obey the gospel. Um, and I would find myself saying, like, oh, you know, like, why, why don't they want to study with me, blah, blah, blah. And I know you were saying, like, opportunities are going to arise to teach your children when, you know, you, you're obeying these commandments, but, like, I think the same goes for teaching those, of our, those people in our family, those people we know, who, you know, any teaching opportunity, as long as we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, like, how are you acting at home? How are you acting at work? How are you acting when you're not in church? Um, the only, the, I've had several opportunities to actually teach people and let people know who, who I am um, as a result of, of me maybe doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Like, people actually asking questions because they see that I don't do this or that I'm doing that. So, 
Good point. Yeah, Seth? Uh, in Peter, in 2 Peter 3, uh, did I just take the point? No, first, first Peter 3. Oh, okay. 2 Peter 3. Uh, Peter talks about uh, Paul's writings <laughs> and the rest of the scriptures. He says that untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction. Uh, how difficult is it to be untaught? Or how difficult is it to be unstable? How much effort goes into being untaught? Well, well none. It's the opposite of being careful, uh, like we're studying here in Deuteronomy. Right. Yeah. Careful would be a good thing here. That would be a good thing to think about. Alex? I was actually thinking of 1 Peter 3 to go along with her point. Uh, in that passage at the beginning of chapter 3, it talks about how wives, through their conduct, can convert their husbands. So, I mean, it's not just children, it's spouses as well. Well, Andrew, you know, think about what our children know about us. They know whether we're sincere and really serving God, or whether or not it's more or less a mask we put on around Christians. When it really means something to us, they'll see that, and it will impact them in the last of those questions. Other questions? Okay, how about chapter 7, verses 1 to 6? When the Lord your God when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Gershites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Gentiles.